time for our sermon. Looking into God's Word this morning. And we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 24, verses 6 to 8, as we continue our look at the end times and the Olivet Discourse. Matthew chapter 24, verses 6 to 8. Read with me. And ye shall hear of wars and rumours of wars, see that ye be not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for your precious word, which reveals to us your plan and who you are. And we pray this morning as we, uh, as we look into it, Father, that our hearts would be open to it, that we'd receive your truth and that you would give us your understanding by your grace. Thank you once again for this time. We thank you for your word. And I pray that you would uh, bless every person here. You would meet every need. Father, through this message, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A big part of this, <clears throat> big portion, we'll focus on this, but this small passage is about wars. It mentions about wars, rumours of wars, nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Wars have been around, believe it or not, <laughs> not far from the beginning. Cain decided to kill his brother, decided to build himself a city. And ever since men decided to build themselves cities, cities have been at war with other cities, and nations have been at war with other nations. Just six chapters into the book of Genesis, the wickedness of man and his propensity for violence and war had become so great the Bible says that God regretted making man altogether and decided to wipe mankind from off the face of the earth. That's how bad man had degenerated. And in verse 5 of Genesis chapter 6, it says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. You like that? What a description of man. He was so evil, so wicked, that the imagination of his heart was only evil continually. And I want you to take special note of that particular uh, phrase this morning, that his imaginations were evil from then, from Genesis chapter 6. Because we're going to be looking at it a little bit later. And then it tells us six verses later in Genesis chapter 6 verse 11. It says, The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me. For the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them in the earth. That's a big call, isn't it? What a decision 
by the creator of the world to look at man, he's the one who he focused and created out of love. He looked, at, he looked at what he'd become, what man had become, and he decided to wipe man off the face of the earth, except for a family. But you'll notice in those verses, it says the earth was filled with violence. So remember in verse 5 it says, the imagination of men's hearts were evil continually. Six verses later, the earth is filled with violence. You see, imaginations of evil, the imaginations of man manifest themselves into reality later on. The hatred that men have one toward another, the imaginations of how they can go killing each other, and we see this on TV, how men, the depravity, the depths to which they will go to achieve something, to win a victory, to gain land, to wipe out an enemy. We see the depths to which man is capable. And God decided many years ago to destroy the world with water and all of mankind except for eight people who we are all descendants of. Because the Bible says that Noah and his family found grace in the eyes of God. So by the end of chapter 10 of Genesis, so only 10 chapters in to the Bible, God finishes the story of how he destroyed the world. Starting off at chapter 6 and finishing at chapter 10, God destroys the world and there we have the story of Noah and his family. Four chapters later, just four chapters later, we have this. Turn with me in your Bibles if you have it. Genesis chapter 14, verse 1. And this is four chapters after God has destroyed the world. Because of the violence of men. And we have here it says, And it came to pass, in Genesis 14 verse 1, And it came to pass in the days of Ephraimel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Chedolomar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that these made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bisha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admar, and Shemabah, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, which is Zoah. That's, that's almost like a world war, if you think about it. They would have been, these were already kings in their own rights, looking after their own kingdoms and nations, at war with each other. Do you know what a world war is? It's when, it's when the, the majority of countries in the world align themselves one or the other. We've experienced that twice now in our world, in our modern world. This was almost a world war in those days. Only four chapters after God destroyed the world because men were so violent. And these were still the descendants of Noah. War's been around since the beginning. What is war? I actually asked a question. I looked up Google, my best friend, when it comes to definitions. And I actually asked a question, what is war? 
in, in Google to see what it would throw back at me. And it actually says, actually, there's a definition of war, believe it or not. It says, war is defined as an active conflict that has claimed more than a thousand lives. Did you know that? It's considered a war when there's more than a thousand lives that have been lost in a conflict between two or more nations. And I also asked the question, has the world ever been at peace? And guess what it threw back? Of the past 3,400 years, so go back 3,400 years into the, into the past, humans have been, have been entirely at peace for 268 of them. Out of 3,400 years, 268 years, the world has been at peace. 8%. Estimates say that at this very moment, there are 40 wars going on around the world. 40. And estimates also say that out of 365 days in a year, 362 are in conflict, one place or another. So Matthew, the Lord tells us in Matthew chapter 6, he says, or verse 6, he says, And ye shall hear of wars and rumours of wars, see that ye be not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Now the Lord says that in the end, ye shall hear of wars and rumours of wars. Nations will rise up against nations, kingdom against kingdom. And we've seen this happen in this last generation or so. We've had two world wars, the Vietnam War, Korean War, Iraq War, and so on, and so on, and so on. It seems this man, doesn't matter how advanced they say he becomes, tends to just kill himself more and more and more and more efficiently. It doesn't seem to be a year that passes without some country going to war against another. As we see in, in Iraq at the moment, they've just spent how many years trying to get Iraq sorted out? And now again we're back in Iraq where men want to take advantage of a power vacuum over there. Is this what Jesus is talking about, though? Are these the wars that Jesus is talking about? Because he also said there'd be famines and pestilences and earthquakes. And we see those around us. Don't we see those in our days? We do. We see all these things in our days. We see them in our newspapers and television. But haven't these things already been around since Jesus' day? And weren't they there before Jesus came? Are there more in our day than there were then? Well, actually, yes and no. There are more wars, there are more famines, there are more problems along that nature today because we have six billion people running around this planet. Whereas going back, the population of the Earth was much smaller, so there was less, in a sense, you could say there's less fighting for territory and resources. But we see much more, we hear of much more of rumours and things going on because of the media. We have an advantage of, of understanding or knowing about something almost the same time it's actually happening on the other side of the world. Whether there's an earthquake, a war, a pestilence, a famine, we have the technology today to receive that information almost instantaneously. We hear of the atrocities in Iraq, the Ebola virus that has claimed over a thousand lives in Africa. We hear the tensions between Ukraine and Russia. We know about September 11 in America and earthquakes that happens in Japan and tsunami that follows and Indonesia. We hear about all these things the same day they happen. Think of it though, 50 years, just go back 50 years, it would have been very different. Without a television in every home and internet to rely on, 
there would have been much less to hear. Go back 100 years, you would have heard a lot less about what was going on. You may have heard about it in a newspaper maybe a month after it had happened. But today we hear about everything that happens, everything that happens. But it's interesting to hear Jesus' advice on this matter as well. He says that when you shall hear of wars and rumours of wars, see that you be not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. In other words, all over the place. Then he says, all, thing, all these things are the beginning of sorrows. Don't worry about them. Don't be alarmed. Thinking that with a, with a particular war or something, it's going to be the end or the end of the world. Let me also give you a perspective on pestilence. Over the years, we've heard of a number of pandemics that have taken place in our world. Do you know which was the, the most devastating pandemic in the world? Have a guess. The Black Plague. Let me give you some information about the Black Plague. <clears throat> it's good. The most devastating sickness or pandemic in his, the history of man. <clears throat> now, I have no doubt that those people who lived through the Black Plague would have thought it was probably the end of the world, especially those living in Europe. The Black Death, or the Black Plague, resulted in the estimated deaths of between 75 to 200 million people. 200 million people. That's, that's, that's actually quite... It, it's, it, it boggles the mind because in... The year 1346 to 53, when this thing was, was raging, okay, there were only 450 million people in the whole world. And, all, and, and between 75 to 200 million of them disappeared, dead. That's a, a third. A third, can you imagine a third of the population of Australia dead? What would, what would it be like? You would absolutely think it was the one, two, what? One in three people is dead. In 1918, the Spanish flu arrived in the scene. Now, we, we know about the swine flu, don't we? The swine flu killed about 200,000 people, and it was well known all around the world, and everyone was worried about it. 200,000 people, which is extraordinary in itself. But the Spanish flu killed about 50 million people. In, the, in 1919, we know about AIDS. AIDS has killed about 35 million people. But today, AIDS is, is almost considered like a, a chronic disease, especially in the modern world. Those who have got it, and they, they estimate there's about um, 25 million people that actually... No, sorry, 35 million people that actually still have it, um, or a, a form of HIV. Um, it's considered more of a chronic disease because the drugs they give them can actually just maintain them. It's a bit like having a, uh, some other type of chronic disease. But there have been absolutely devastating plagues that have occurred around the world over the past 2,000 years. Actually, I'll give you a couple more. There's a bubonic plague, which killed 25 million people. Constantinople, which was one of the biggest cities in the world at that stage, lost 40% of its, of its people in one go. Can you imagine 40% of Melbourne dead? 
Smallpox wiped out 5 million people in the Roman Empire in 165 to 180. These are absolutely devastating plagues. And Jesus says that these things will come about. You will hear of wars, there will be pestilences, there will be earthquakes. But we need to remind ourselves before we look at these things and start to look around at us and say, this is referring to today, let's remind ourselves of a few important things. What was Jesus answering here? Do you remember that this whole, these two chapters, Jesus was answering some questions given to him by his disciples. And the question he's directly answering here is, when will the end of the world be? His disciples came to him and said, Lord, when will the end of the world be? And Jesus basically responds and says, all these things will happen, but the end is not yet. Don't, don't be alarmed. Don't be fearful. So he's speaking about the end of the world. And who was Jesus speaking to? Well, in this passage, Jesus is speaking directly to Jewish believers, to the Jews. Not Gentile believers like us. This is not directed to the church. Understand this. This passage is not directed to us. We have the benefit of knowing what's going to happen. But this particular warning is given primarily to the Jews during the trip, what we call the tribulation period. You'll notice in this passage in chapter 24, he speaks to those who, who believe in the Sabbath, which we don't. He addresses those who are living in Judea, which we do not. So there's a focus around the Jewish people. When was Jesus specifically referring to? Well, his reference to the Jews is directly related and focused on what we call the tribulation period, the last seven years before Jesus comes back. This is the seven-year period prophesied by Daniel the prophet, which will come upon the world before Jesus' return. But before this period comes, which is the main book of the theme of main theme of the book of Revelation, the church will be removed from this world. Before this seven-year period comes on the, upon this on this world and upon the Jews, the church, which means every believer who was who was born again, has put their faith in Christ, and is now a child of God, God will be taken out and removed from the world. This will precipitate other things. And it's after this that we see a revival among the Jews. So Matthew 24 is not directed to the church as if we are looking at these things and saying the world, the end is coming now. Yeah, it may be the last days before Christ's return, yes. From our perspective, we see something going on. It's heading in a, in a particular direction. Now, though the wars and pestilences we observe around us today and throughout history may not be exactly what Jesus is referring to, they are moving in one direction. And that is the time when these uh, words will mean something specifically to a specific group of people who are, who are caught up in a specific period of time. Believers... Jewish believers who find themselves in the tribulation period after millions of people in this world will disappear of which I'm, I am sure that you are hoping you will be one of them there will come a day when all of these things wars, earthquakes famines, pestilences culminate a wave after wave after wave in quick succession 
And we call that time the tribulation period. It will be God's time of judgment on this earth. Now, it says in verse 8 of Matthew 24, these are the beginning of sorrows. Now, what does it mean, the beginning of sorrows? Well, the, the term beginning of sorrows is directly related to birth pains. So when a woman is pregnant and goes into labour, that's the period before the birth that this, that this is giving you a picture of. There will be labour pains experienced by the Jews and this world before a particular birth takes place. And that's the revival of Israel. Yeah, we see Israel as a nation now. But Israel has not accepted the truth. They haven't accepted Christ as Saviour. But there will come a day when the Bible says that there will be a revival in Israel when they will understand that Jesus was the Messiah that God sent to this world. And they will embrace him. And there will be a revival in Israel. That is the birth of Israel. These things are the beginning of sorrows. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 6. I want to, show, I want to share some things with you and, and show you how what Jesus is speaking about in Matthew aligns very closely to what we see as the four horsemen in the book of Revelation. Look at Revelation. So Revelation chapter 6 speaks to us about almost like a panoramic view of the, um, of the tribulation period. And, and it starts off with verse... Let's look at verse 2. And it says, And I saw, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. All right. So we have an individual who has been given immense power and authority, and he's going out conquering. I wonder if you can guess who that individual is. Let's look at, let's look at verse 3. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red. And was power was given to him that sat on thereon to take peace from the earth. And that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. So there's one individual who goes out conquering. And then following behind him is war and there's bloodshed as well. Look at verse 5. And when he'd opened the third seal, I heard and the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld and lo, a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny, and see that thou hurt not the oil and wine. That's famine. That refers to the famine that will take place in this earth. So we've got... Someone conquering, war, famine. In verse 7, And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Death. And hell followed with him, and power was given unto him over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger, with death, and with the beasts of the earth. That's how they align. There's, there's war, 
there is um, uh, famines and there's death, which has to do with, and you notice how he says he kills with death, with hunger, with beasts, pestilences, and all those things that follow war-type uh, environments. These verses we've read, seen Revelation chapter 6, find their place in the last seven years, that seven-year period before Christ returns. It's epitomised by war, famines, pestilences and earthquakes. And the end, of the, the end of the tribulation period, at the end, is marked by one almighty war. Is marked by one war that, that, and battle that will shadow everything else, will cause everything else to be shadowed. And it will usher in, it will be the war before a thousand years of peace in this world. It's a time we call the millennium. Notice how a lot of people are, talk about the millennium as if they understand what it is. Well, the millennium is when Christ returns, defeats the armies of Satan, and actually rules himself personally from Israel, from Jerusalem. He sits on the throne and he governs this whole world for a period of a thousand years, which is peaceful. One benefit of being a Christian, one benefit of knowing your Bible, is that we know how the story will end. We know how it ends. That should give us great confidence with our lives. We know that the final story involves a battle between Christ and the armies of heaven and the Antichrist and his armies and the Antichrist will be defeated. We know who the winner will be. Let's read that account. Look at Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. Revelation 19.11. Now, this is speaking about when Jesus will return to this earth. Okay? Look what it says of him. It says in verse 11, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he, he does judge, doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies that which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast, and the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse, and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake 
of burning, of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant was slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Wow, what a picture. What a picture. That's a very different picture of Jesus compared to the way we know him. The meek, the lamb, the humble, the one who allowed himself to be taken and whipped and scourged and spat upon and had his beard pulled and, have, and, and allowed himself to be nailed to a cross. The man who never raised his hand to anyone else but only allowed himself ever to be beaten by the men. When he returns, he returns in a very different way. He returns on a horse, the Bible says, to tread down the enemies of God. I find it interesting that people often accuse, one of the reasons that people say they don't believe God is they accuse, and they accuse him in a sense, of not intervening in the suffering of this world. Have you heard that argument? How can God exist when you see so much suffering around you? Haven't you heard that argument before? Yeah. Yeah, Jesus, the fact that Jesus allowed himself to suffer at the hands of men tells us what God is like. It tells us that he does not normally intervene all the time in the affairs of men. But there will come a day when he will intervene. The Bible says that he will come back at the end of the seven, that seven-year period and he will decimate, wipe out the enemies of God. Only leaving those people who believe in God alive in the end. He will be as we have never seen him before. He will come back as a warrior, as a general. He won't be meek. And once again, like I showed you last week, he came like that originally, 2,000 years ago. He's coming back like that. Have you ever been... Ever had the thought of being trapped in a cage of a lion? What it'd be like? You ever seen? I've actually, I've actually had that thought before because there have been more. There's been more than one person in the news that have thought to themselves they're going to jump into a lion's enclosure, and they don't come out any good. Ever, ever, you have seen those stories? I've wondered to myself, what would it be like in an enclosure with, with a lion? You wouldn't want to be there. The Bible says that Jesus will come back as a lion. And if you're an enemy of his, you will not want to be there. Because he cannot be defeated. He is the son of God. And he will not lose. God has already told us the way it's going to finish. And God never makes a mistake. Why does God allow suffering in the world? Because God is a patient God. He's patient. He allows men their free will to do what they want. But he's all the while... Hoping. He's all the while calling to them, giving them an opportunity to repent and, and turn to Him. But guess what the attitude of the world will be when God does decide to intervene? Do you think they're going to like it? So they complain when He does intervene, and when He does intervene, do you think they're going to be happy about it? No. Because when He does intervene, it will mean that they have to conform, or they'll be lost. You see, the fallen nature of man always finds an excuse to criticise God and to excuse itself from sin. 
That's why the whole world during the tribulation period runs after the Antichrist. They're enamoured with him. They're in wonder of him. And they say, who can beat this guy? He's unbelievable. He is so powerful. I'm going to follow him. And they're so enamoured of him, they allow themselves to be marked on the forehead or on the hand in, in an act of obedience to him, of allegiance to him. The world we see around us with all its wars and hatred and sin is a manifestation of a spiritual battle that is raging in spiritual places for the hearts of men. It is constant and raging and one day, war. Will, the Bible says, war will take place in heaven itself when God finally calls an end to Satan's freedom and casts him and his rebellious angels to this earth and confines them here. And that will be the end game. That will be the time when Satan realises he hasn't got long to go. That will occur around halfway through the tribulation period. Turn to Revelation chapter 12 with me. I want, I want to show you that. Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. Now once again, this is, this is in the midst of the tribulation period. And the Bible teaches us, Revelation chapter 12, verse 7, And there was war in heaven. Michael, who is the archangel, and his angels fought against the dragon, that's the devil, and the dragon fought, and his angels, that's the third of the angels that he managed to bring into rebellion against God. And it says, and prevailed not, neither was their place found on any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Understand that Satan is not bound now. Satan still has the freedom to roam from earth to heaven to anywhere that he wants. The consummation of Christ's death on the, on the cross and his resurrection, he hasn't fully um, finished that off. We are in a, almost like a transitional period when the God is bringing in people to, as his bride. And when that bride is complete, the Bible says he'll take that bride away with him and God then starts again with Israel. And those last seven years will be like this world has never seen before. And there will be war in heaven and God will cast those rebellious angels into the earth. And the only place they can stay is in the earth. They won't be, able to, they won't be allowed to leave it or do anything. That would be a terrible time. Because imagine the devil. You know when someone knows their time is short and they are absolutely evil, what will they be capable of? And he knows his time, the Bible says, will be short. He'll only have a few more. He's lived for at least 6,000 years, this guy. And his angels have, have rebelled with him for 6,000 years. Imagine when they realise they've got three years to live before they're cast into eternal prison. You wouldn't want to be around. Not want to be around. So let me finalise with this thought with you. If you are a Christian today, you need to understand that you are in a war today. A spiritual war that has eternal consequences 
and will determine the final state of the souls of men around you. If you are not a Christian, then understand that you are a prisoner of war at this point. A prisoner. Whether you believe it or not, you are a prisoner of Satan. Unless you have allowed Christ to free you from the prison that you are in, you are bound and there is only one direction that you will go. Bible says that if you are not saved, that you are a prisoner of Satan's schemes and devices, and until you are freed by the power of Christ, you will remain a prisoner. Christian, you need to understand that the Bible tells us that though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want to show you and wrap up the message. Second Corinthians chapter 10. Second Corinthians chapter 10. Oh, sorry, I said it was verse 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll, we'll read from verse 3, which I've already read for you. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself, itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Do you remember I asked you to remember? Remember in the early, in the early chapters of Genesis, it spoke about the imaginations of men were continually evil. And those imaginations eventually manifested themselves into violence and war. Okay? And every other depravity that man has, has imagined in his mind, he goes out to get. Now, we are in a warfare. The Bible tells us that the weapons that God has given us are able to cast down imaginations. They're able to overcome them. So the imaginations and the bad thoughts that you have in your head, you are able to defeat. That whether it's you that has come up with that thought or whether it's Satan that's trying to plant a thought in you, you have the ability to overcome it through the weapons that God has given you to fight those things. And not only that, it says that we were able to tear down the imaginations of flesh, that, have, that, that the poisoned motives that lurk within us, the corrupted ego that continually wants to overcome and have the first place. The weapons that, you, that are at your disposal today are able to tear those things down. And everything that exalts itself against God, which means wants to be higher than God, you have the ability to be able to defeat. Through these weapons, you have the ability to bring your thoughts under control and in line with the thoughts that God has for you. Instead of the imagination of your flesh keeping you captive to it, you have the ability to be able to keep captive the thoughts in your mind. Let me tell you what those weapons are. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6.
is the final passage we're reading today. I thank you for your patience. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Look at the weapons that God has given you and that are at your disposal today. Finally, my brethren, chapter 6, verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armour of God, that you may be able to stand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with the truth, And having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Any soldier in a war who is not proficient with the use of his weapons, is a useless soldier. Would you agree with me? And he's in danger of not just killing himself or getting killed, but in danger of actually getting people around him killed too. In order to be an effective soldier for Christ, to affect the hearts and minds of people around you, to win the the war and the battle in your own life, you need to have these weapons ready at all times. You need to be ready and, and confident with the use of them. You need to be skilled in their use. Now look at what it says here. Just I'll give you a quick rundown of, of those things. You need to know the truth of the gospel and how to defend it. It starts off by telling us. Stand for what that which is right, having the breastplate of righteousness. Be always ready to share the gospel with those who are lost. Have great faith that God is in control and is by your side. Rejoice. With the helmet of salvation. Rejoice in the gift of the salvation and thank God for it daily. Know the word of God. Read it. Study it. And how to apply it to your life. Pray constantly with fervency, with perseverance for yourself, for the saints and for the lost. If you have these things, you will do well. You will have the ability to conquer the imaginations that rise from the flesh. And you will have the ability to influence people around you and bring them to the Lord. But if you are a soldier who does not understand the weapons that God has given you and the armour that God has given you, you are a danger to yourself and a danger to people around you. Understand that. Because in the end, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We will all stand. And how would I be as a soldier of Christ when I stand before him, my king, my commander, and I have no armour, my sword is rusted. I'm full of bruises and, and, and things, and I have nothing to show for the war that I'm in the middle of. Fathers, see all these words? These are especially true for you. Especially true. And as we remember our fathers today, I need you to understand how important your role is as the spiritual protectors and defenders of your families. If you can't fight 
in this war. If you lay aside the weapons that God has given you, how can you defend your own family when you can't defend yourself? If you do not pray, how, can you, how, how will your children pray? If you are not the example that they need to see so that they can learn to fight too, because we are in this war, how will they live? If you don't set the example in your own life, in your own home, as the defender of your family, and that is one of your primary purposes, if you can't defend your family, you've failed in your job. You failed miserably. So remember, men, you are meant to be the defenders, the protectors, the examples to your family. Understand your children as they grow up and they see what you do will form their first opinion about what God is like by the way you treat them and by the way you are to them. And if you give them a wrong example... If you aren't the type of father you've been called to be, they are more than likely going to have a bad perception about who their heavenly father is. And that will be on our shoulders. Please, understand how important these times are. The times are short. Jesus could come back at any moment. And what will we have to say? Bless you all. Thank you.